Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac Podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's Word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org. Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 16, verses 10 through 21, where we are going to finish the bold judgments. Isn't that good news? We're going to be covering bold judgments 5 through 7. And last week I stated that Revelation 16 is the greatest chapter in the book of Revelation, which at first glance seems to be an untrue statement, right? Because this is all about the final devastation of the earth. So how could that possibly be the greatest chapter in Revelation? But the statement is true because of the usage of the Greek term mega. Mega, the term appears 82 times in the book of Revelation, and 11 of those are right here in chapter 16, telling us that this is a mega chapter, that the events recorded here are unlike anything that the earth has ever seen. And so that's why I refer to it as the greatest chapter in the book of Revelation. Um, Jesus did the same, I think, Matthew chapter 24, 21. He says, for then there will be a great, a mega tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now, this mega tribulation we've been talking about, it comes in the form of these seven judgments that are represented by seven bowls. And last week, we uh, went through bowls one through four. These are judgments targeting nature. We saw judgments dealing with sores, bloody seawater, bloody fresh water, and the scorching sun. And today we're looking at judgments that are targeting the Antichrist. We're going to put a big bullseye on the Antichrist and go right after him and his kingdom. And these judgments have to do with darkness, a dried up Euphrates River, and earthquake and hail. And so one of the things that we saw last week that was fascinating was the similarity between the bold judgments and the plagues in Exodus. I don't know, I always get excited about these connections. And so here's a chart that compares the two. In, In Exodus... We had the Passover lamb. In Revelation, we had the song of the lamb. In Exodus, we had Pharaoh. In Revelation, we have the Antichrist. Exodus had ten plagues. Here in Revelation, with the bulls, we have seven plagues. In Exodus, the Red Sea. In Revelation, the Crystal Sea. We had God bringing people out in Exodus. In Revelation, he is bringing people in. In Exodus, we had the song of Moses. And in Revelation, we had the song of Moses and the lamb. Exodus had a tabernacle. Revelation has the temple in heaven. And we had the smoke of Sinai in Exodus. And here in Revelation, we saw the smoke of heaven in John's view of that throne room and what was taking place prior to these bold judgments. But not only were there these awesome connections between Exodus and Revelation, but also between the trumpet judgments and the bold judgments. Here's another chart that kind of lays that out. We saw the same type of judgment in the same order dealing with the earth, the sea, the rivers, the heavens, mankind torment, an army, and angry nations. But there's one really key difference between the trumpets and the bulls. And what was that difference? Trumpet judgments are partial, while the bull judgments are complete. If we go back to those trumpet judgments, it continually refers to a third, a third, a third. Whereas here, the bull judgments, these mega judgments, they impact the whole earth setting the stage 
for the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ and his millennial reign on the earth. Now, all of this devastation causes us to ask from time to time, is God just in doing this? Is this really consistent with his character? And God always knows, I think, just where our threshold is and just where we are asking that question. And he answers it in a timely fashion. And he did so last week in Revelation 16, 5, when John says that I heard the angel in charge of the water say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was for you brought these judgments. This verse reminds us that God's judgments are rooted in his character of holiness and in his justice. They flow from his very character, which is loving, true, good, holy, and just. And so, yes, it is appropriate to say that God is both loving and he also brings judgment. Well, let's get down to the business of these last three bold judgments. I'll feel some sense of relief when they're done. And again, these are judgments targeting the Antichrist, darkness, the dried up Euphrates, and earthquake and hail. So let me read the text for us today, verses 10 through 21, where it says, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of the heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief, Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Would you join me in praying? (sighs) Father, we ask for your help in this moment. I I pray for your help in communicating uh, what you want to say to us through your word today. I cannot do it on my own. Desperately need your help. So fill me with your spirit and fill me with your words. And God, I pray for this congregation today. I thank you so much for them. And God, I pray that you would open their ears, open their hearts to what your Holy Spirit wants to say to them today. And ultimately, for all of us, may we not be merely hearers of the word, but God, make us doers. Make us radically obedient to your word. It deserves nothing less. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So again, these uh, bold judgments five through seven, they are targeting the Antichrist through darkness, a dried up Euphrates and earthquake and hail. And so we can kind of start to maybe cheer a little bit for his demise, for his defeat. And the first of these bowls is darkness. Darkness in verses 10 through 11. Now this darkness, it's important to note that it was foretold by the prophets. And if you want some homework, if you want to go home and do a little bit of research, read Isaiah 60 verse 2 or Joel chapter 2 verse 2, Zephaniah 1 15. We have Old Testament prophecies that are talking about this very moment. So it was foretold by the prophets. But did you know it was also foretold by Jesus? Jesus told us that this was going to happen. Mark chapter 13, verse 24, Jesus said, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. And it was also foreshadowed, I believe, by the ninth plague in Egypt. So here we go again. Another connection with the book of Exodus where it says in Exodus 10, 21, Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. If you, um, at some point in your Bibles, don't necessarily go there right now, but circle, highlight, underline that phrase. I think it's significant. A darkness to be felt. Verse 22, so Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. So interesting, isn't it? Fascinating that the Egyptians had darkness while the Israelites had light. You know, one of the questions of this bold judgment is just who will be impacted by it? It says to us in verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. So is this darkness isolated or is it universal? Is it isolated in that it centers on potentially a rebuilt city of Babylon serving as the Antichrist headquarters? Is it just dark there? Allowing maybe for tribulation saints, just as it was for Hebrew and for the Hebrews in Exodus to have light? Or is this a universal darkness that impacts everyone? And if you read the commentaries, it's kind of wishy-washy. They don't really give a clear answer. Here's what I think, and this may sound wishy-washy too. But the darkness is universal in its scope, but isolated in its impact. The darkness is universal in its scope, but isolated in its impact. This is what I mean. I believe there will be global darkness. I think there has to be because it says that the Antichrist kingdom will be plunged into darkness. And what is the scope of the Antichrist kingdom at this point? It's global, right? It's global. Which means that the tribulation saints, I believe, will have to deal with the absence of physical light. But here's the thing, and this is where it's so encouraging to us today, so pay attention. The absence of physical light is not the greatest impact of the judgment. The greatest impact has to do with torment. Now, that's not the good part. Hang on. Okay. Remember that darkness described in Exodus as darkness that could be felt? It was a darkness that torments the soul that terrorizes. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've been in situations in the presence of evil and you felt darkness. I think that's what we're talking about here, that kind of darkness that torments. But here's the good news. Here's the thing. The child of God has no need to fear such darkness. For we have the light of Jesus within us that overcomes that 
darkness. John chapter 1, verse 5, the light Jesus shines in the darkness, and in his presence, darkness must flee. We've talked about this before with angels. Satan and his demons are incredibly powerful, far more powerful than we are as human beings, but they are no match for the creator who created them in the first place. And if God is for us, who or what can be against us? So church, with this qualification, when you are aligned in the authority of God Almighty, you have no need to fear anything that has to do with darkness and evil. Doesn't mean you won't be attacked. Doesn't mean that Satan isn't going to come against you with demonic hordes. But you know what? We can be victorious through the light of Jesus Christ. So we do not need to fear. So in that sense, I believe the darkness is universal in its scope during this bowl, but isolated in its impact. Those who are tribulation saints will have that light of Jesus that sustains them in the midst of this bold judgment. It's another case where I believe there's a beautiful distinction between those who belong to Jesus and those who do not. Now, there's an important warning to us here with this fifth bold judgment. The darkness of this fifth bowl is a preview, a taste of hell itself. We read in the book of Jude 13, it says, For whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So as, as horrifying as this fifth bowl judgment sounds, and it is, it still pales in comparison to the torment of eternity in hell. Well, how did people respond to this tormenting darkness? It says in the second half of verse 10, it says, people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. It's the same response that we saw last week. Rather than take ownership of their sin, what'd they do? They blamed. They blamed God for its consequences. And I really believe verse 11 is one of the saddest and most tragic verses in the Bible. And here's why. Because this is the last time in the book of Revelation that it will refer to an absence of repentance. This is the end of the line in regard to repentance. Their hearts have become hardened, much as was the case with Pharaoh in Egypt. And so that is bowl number five, the plague of darkness. Bowl number six is a dried up Euphrates, and this is pretty cool. All right, verse 12. Verse 12 says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up. Now let's talk about this. It's, it, it, the great river Euphrates, it is a great river indeed. It flows 1,800 miles. You know where its source is? I found this really interesting. Mount Ararat is its source. Now, what do you know Mount Ararat from? That's where the ark landed, all right? That's where the ark landed, and it is an elevation of 17,000 feet to the top of Mount Ararat. And so at 17,000 feet, what do you expect to find there? Snow, okay, snow. Um, from, there, from its source on Mount Ararat, it empties into the Persian Gulf. And it runs anywhere from 300 to 1,200 yards wide. And so it's called the Great River five times in Scripture. So it's a mega river in our mega chapter. But consider this question with me for a moment. What will be the state of the Euphrates prior to the Sixth Bull Judgment? Think about what has just happened prior to this. Okay, what happened in bowl number three? Fresh water was turned into blood. What happened in bowl number four? The sun scorched the earth. And so what does that mean about all that snow 
on Mount Ararat. It's going to melt. It's going to flood. And so what you have actually with the, the Euphrates is you're going to have a bloody and flooded Euphrates River, a flood like never before, creating an epic flood of blood. And one of the consequences of this flood would be that it would certainly take out any and all bridges that had previously crossed the Euphrates, turning the Euphrates River into a great sea. Now, we encountered the Euphrates earlier in Revelation. Remember the sixth trumpet judgment, it said in Revelation 9.14, says, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And at that time, we said that the Euphrates was important because it represented the easternmost boundary of the land that God promised to Israel. So symbolically, it was a divider between God's people and those who are not God's people, between good and between evil, between those who belong to God and those who did not. And so in the sixth trumpet judgment, four demons from beyond the Euphrates are released to um, lead 200 million demons who would kill one-third of the earth. And now here in the bold judgments, something else is coming from beyond the Euphrates. What is it? We find in the second half of verse 12, it says, to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Who are these kings? It doesn't say. So we don't know. So don't speculate. Okay? Don't say, oh, I think I know who they are. I, I know it, it's, it's, it's Russia. It's China. Just stop it. Okay? We don't know because it doesn't say. And don't get excited about reading books that tell you who they are because they don't know either. Okay? What we do know is that these world leaders are bent on the destruction of God's people in their land, and so they amass. And my theory is this, perhaps they are blaming God's people in God's land for all the devastation that has occurred. And that would make sense, right? Because throughout history, what have we seen with anti-Semitism? The Jews get blamed for lots of stuff, right? They get blamed for this. They get blamed for that. And I think that's what's happening right here. Well, the miraculous drying of the Euphrates provides a land bridge for them to mobilize and advance for this very purpose. But make no mistake. Check this out. The driving force behind all of this advance is Satan himself. How do we know? Look at verse 13. John says, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits. Now, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, that's a reference to that unholy trinity that we've talked about before. Satan, Antichrist, Antispirit, also known as the false prophet. They are the driving force behind these armies from the east, crossing the Euphrates and advancing on God's land and God's people. And the demons associated with the unholy trinity, it says that they're what? They're like frogs. They're like frogs. And this is significant for several reasons. Number one, frogs were considered to be unclean by the Israelites. And so um, just the very image of the frog would evoke a sense of uncleanness. It's like, oh, that's an unclean spirit. That's an unclean animal, highlighting the fact, again, that these are unclean demonic spirits coming forth from the unholy trinity. Number two, frogs were the second plague in Egypt, weren't they? So we got yet another connection with Exodus. Another reminder that God is in charge of every event in this unfolding story. He makes these connections and we just marvel and say, go God, right? 
And so the Apostle John sees three frog-like demonic entities proceeding from the mouths of the unholy trinity. And church, here's where I'm going to insert some application in the middle of the sermon today. Satan's strategy is no different today. He uses our mouths to bring death and destruction. That's what's happening here, right? You've got the unholy trinity. You've got these unclean spirits proceeding from their mouths. And that's what, that's what influences the leaders of the east to come and to come against God's people and God's land. Satan's strategy, no different today. He uses our mouths to bring death and destruction through our gossip, our slander, our backbiting, our complaining. You know, Jesus said that it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So that by our words, this is terrifying actually, by our words we will be justified and by our words we will be condemned. Again, why is that? Because our words reveal who we really are. And so I just want to ask you today, what are your words saying about your heart today? Far be it from us to profess to be children of God and speak like we are children of Satan. Well, verse 14 tells us that these demons do more than talk. Verse 14 says, For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Not only do these demons persuade world leaders by their speech, but also by performing miracles. And it will seem to these world leaders that the miraculous drying up of the Euphrates, this land bridge, is affirmation that they are doing the right thing and seeking to annihilate God's people in their land. And this will take place at a particular location identified in verse 16. It says they assembled them at a place in Hebrew called Armageddon. Um, interestingly, this is actually the only place in the Bible that the term Armageddon is used. We, we use it a lot, don't we? We talk about Armageddon, Armageddon. This is the only place that it appears. And I remember a few years back in California when uh, a bridge had to be closed on the highway known as the 405, which is the busiest highway in America. Um, the anticipation of the closing of that bridge and the chaos that would ensue was called Carmageddon. All right? So even... Even people not connected with the church or the Bible, it's like they know Armageddon. There have been movies called Armageddon. And so we use that term a lot. This is the only place it appears in the scriptures. The term comes from the Hebrew har, which means hill, and Mageddon, which refers to Mount Megiddo. It is a raised area overlooking a huge valley known as the Valley of Jezreel or the Plain of Estrelon. The valley is 10 miles wide and 35 miles long. And Napoleon, he called it the perfect battlefield. The perfect battlefield. Throughout its history, over 200 battles have been fought there, including um, some key battles that took place in the Bible. We have Deborah defeating Sisera there in Judges 5.19. We have Gideon defeating the Midianites there in Judges chapter 7. We have Pharaoh defeating Josiah there in 2 Kings 23.29. And there's another connection with Pharaoh here. I believe. And that connection is this. The armies of the world are being lured to this location just as Pharaoh's chariots were being lured into the Red Sea. Again, these, these kings from the east think that the, the door is being opened for them when actually it is the door to their destruction, much as it was for Pharaoh's army. So 
We'll talk a lot more about Armageddon and how that relates to the conclusion of things in the weeks to come. For now, it is enough to know that as a consequence of the sixth bold judgment, it has been dried up. And the way this affects the Antichrist is because this is leading to the conclusion of his defeat. So, number seven. Bowl number seven is earthquake and hail. Verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. Does that ring with you at all? Does that resonate? It is done. What does that remind you of? Reminds me of Jesus on the cross. He said, It is finished. In John chapter 19, verse 30, it was a statement that the work of salvation of repentant sinners was complete. Here in Revelation 16, 17, it is a statement that the work of judgment for unrepentant sinners is complete. Well, how is God going to do this? We find out in verse 18, it says, And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. Ever been in an earthquake? Here in northern Michigan, not a lot, but maybe you've lived in some other places. When, when that ground starts shaking, it's, it's unsettling. It's un- it gets in your head more than it bothers you physically, I think, sometimes. There have been some amazingly destructive earthquakes in our, our world's history. I think of, uh, what was it, 87, 88, thereabouts, when the World Series was going on in the Bay Area, right? And the big Bay Area earthquake happened back then, and we were watching images, even as they unfolded, where I was watching a baseball game. Um, Well, that's big, but this is mega, right? This is a mega earthquake in our mega chapter. And again, I believe preterists who believe that these events were fulfilled with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, they don't really have an answer for things like this, okay? This is, again, as Jesus said, the world's never seen anything like this before. The earthquake associated with the seventh bowl was so mega that it says in verse 19, the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Now, what's the great city here? What's it talking about? Jerusalem, okay? The Bible refers to the great city. It's referring to Jerusalem. And this is interesting to me. I believe that the purpose of the city being split is not to judge it, but to remodel it. To remodel it. It is believed that these physical changes that will happen to the city of Jerusalem will actually prepare it for the central role that it will play in the millennial kingdom as Christ reigns from there. Some of you even believe that the result of this earthquake will be that Jerusalem will become the highest point on the face of the earth, a throne befitting the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so Jerusalem is impacted positively by this earthquake as it is remodeled. Babylon, not so much, not so much. For it says in the second half of verse 19, And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. We'll talk about Babylon a lot next week. Is it a physical city? Or is it an ideology? Or is it both? And to be honest with you, in my journey through this, I'm, a, I'm still on the fence. I think a few weeks ago I was more, you know what, I think it's just ideology. I think I'm more on the both end. We'll talk about that more next week. It's at least an ideology where it refers to the entire worldwide political, economic, and religious kingdom of the Antichrist, which is directly opposed to God and his kingdom. And this earthquake will be the death blow 
of that kingdom. It will literally now lie in ruins. And so the devastation is so great that it says in verse 20, every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. Think about the ramifications that God is literally transforming the topography of the earth. Again, demonstrating his right as creator to, to mold and form the earth in whatever way he chooses. And then the, the final exclamation point of the judgments is in verse 21 where it says, And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of hail because the plague was so severe. Once again, the tragic response of blaming rather than repenting. Well, mercifully, We've come to the end of the bold judgments. We are now confronted with the question, how should we then live? We talked a little bit about in the middle about the importance of our speech and how that is to be consistent with Christ. I believe the answer to the question here overall in this passage is found in verse 15. Jesus inserts this little beatitude in the middle of the passage. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Three questions for application. The first question is this. What does it mean that Jesus is coming like a thief? First thing we need to know is that this is a warning. Jesus is giving a warning when he says, I'm coming like a thief. It's a warning to professing believers who have not fully trusted Christ. And this is consistent with what we experienced in the letters to the seven churches. Jesus said this to Sardis. He said it to Laodicea. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Be ready. Be ready. We who are walking with Jesus, who have trusted in him for our salvation, we don't have to worry about him coming like a thief. Why? Because he'll be coming as a groom, ready to receive his bride. And we're going to be ready for that, right? Because we're going, to be, we're going to talk about that more here in just a moment. It was a problem in the first century. People who were professing believers who had not fully trusted Christ. It is a problem in the 21st century. Churches are filled today, I believe, with people who have a false assurance of salvation. Who maybe trust in the fact that once upon a time, they prayed a prayer, but their lives today bear no fruit. And Jesus said, by their fruit, you will know them. Two things are true about the coming of a thief, are they not? That the coming of the thief is, first of all, unexpected and surprising. I remember one time, many years ago, Christy and I were parked. That didn't sound good, did it? Um, we had parked our vehicle at a park and went for a walk, and she left her purse in the car. And we came back to find the glass shattered and the purse gone. It was unexpected, and it was surprising. And so it will be for many professing believers who have not fully trusted in Jesus Christ. They will be shocked. They will say, Lord, Lord, to which he will respond, depart from me. I never knew you. The second thing about the coming of a thief is that the coming of a thief is devastating, right? He takes away your treasure, just like the thief who took Christie's purse. And so it will be for those who profess Christ, but he isn't really their treasure. Their treasure was the things of this life in reality, and they will be devastated when those treasures are ultimately burned up and they are left with nothing. And so that's what it means that Jesus is coming like a thief. It's a warning given to professing believers who have not fully trusted Christ. 
It's my job to ask you the question today. Does that describe you? Question number two, what does it mean to stay awake? Well, the first question comes in the context of a warning. This comes in the context of a blessing. I love this. This is another of the eight Beatitudes that appear in the book of Revelation. They begin, blessed is the one. Remember the Beatitude at the very beginning? It said, blessed is the one who reads these words aloud, right? Telling us that there is blessing associated with our study of the book of Revelation. Well, here's another one. Look again at verse 15. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Well, what does it mean to stay awake? I think number one, it means not to be lulled to sleep by Satan's hypnotic lullabies. Not to be lulled to sleep by Satan's hypnotic lullabies. And boy, does Satan have a thick songbook, doesn't he? To distract us from the things of God and his kingdom. Could be good things. Good things that become too great in our lives, that become idols. It could be bad things which have become sources of anxiety, worry, discouragement in our lives. It could be trivial things which at the end of the day just don't really matter. But what they all have in common is that we give ourselves to them and they lull us to sleep. But the blessing here is for those who stay awake. Which means... Be focused on things above and those that count for eternity. Be focused on things above and those that count for eternity. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Colossians 3. He said, if you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The blessing here in Revelation 16, 15 is for those who stay awake. Are you awake this morning spiritually? Maybe toward the end of this message isn't the time to ask, right? But <laughs> let me just challenge you with this as well. I, I think summer is a danger zone especially here in northern Michigan. I think Satan would love to use summer as an opportunity to lull us to sleep spiritually. And I think it's important that you enjoy summer. I think it's important that you get outside as much as you can, acknowledging the beauty of this season. That would be a wonderful way to worship God, is to appreciate the beauty of the season. But don't you dare let Satan lull you to sleep by transgressing the things of God for the things of the earth, okay? So be careful with summer. This leads then to a third question. What does it mean to keep your garments on? Look again at verse 15. It says, Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. This is really just an illustration of what it means to stay awake, to be prepared for Christ's return. We are to be all dressed up in our wedding clothes, ready for that groom to return, waking up in the morning saying, maybe today. Did you wake up this morning with that thought? Maybe today. And so I'm going to be on my toes. I'm going to be alert. I'm going to be ready. I'm going to be expectant. I'm going to be vigilant, setting my mind on things above and not on earthly things. And so Jesus himself tells us today in Matthew 24, 42, church, therefore stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Would you join me as we pray? 
Father, thank you for bringing us through this portion of our journey through the book of Revelation. It it is accelerating quickly. We've finished chapter 16. And uh, Lord willing, we're going to finish chapter 17 next week. And so we are rapidly coming to the end. God, help us not to fall into the traps that we've talked about today, the traps of Satan lulling us to sleep. Would you find us to be faithful? Would you find us to be awake? ready for your return. And so, God, where there is the need for confession and repentance of um, apathy, where there's the need for confession and repentance of sins of omission and sins of commission, where our wedding clothes are soiled, God, would you clean us up today? Make us a pure bride that has no spot or wrinkle, for this is what the groom deserves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.